Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out. Um, I hope a lot of you got to see that rainbow on the way in that evidently I missed. Um, I need to clearly was pretty cool. pay a lot Should more hear, attention. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Um, noted. Straight up. Thank you for coming back uh, to, to Bad Talks, to our, our sixth season. Um, this, is our, this is our first talk that kicks off our sixth season, if you can Jake, believe it. We've had 20 Jake, Bad Talks. Jake, um, no, we really, really appreciate you guys <laughs> taking Used your time. Um, your time, obviously, is your most valuable resource. I heard there's a baseball game tonight or something like that. Anyway, thank you for taking your time to be here. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Um, one change that we've made for this new season is um, we are going to have um, audio recordings of all of our talks going forward. Um, you'll be able to listen to them at our website, badtalks.com. Um, and they'll be uploaded shortly after every talk going forward. So if you visit badtalks.com, the library of all past talks is updated, um, and we'll be uploading the, the, the audio of this talk tonight um, in, in the next few days. So our next, uh, th th tonight is, is kicking off the, the sixth season. Um, we're really excited about the topics that we have for this year. Um, our next talk will be January 22nd. Um, and Kyle will, will tell you a little bit more about the topic later on tonight. But for now, um, we have a very, uh, a very, very rich topic tonight on, on home technology. Um, if anybody has any questions about bad talks or suggestions for future topics, or somebody that you know that would be a great panelist to be on a topic, come see myself um, or Paul over in the back corner, or Cindy, who you probably met out at the front table, um, or shoot us an email, um, and, and you can grab the, uh, the form on the website, badtalks.com. So we're going to get started. Thank you very much for coming. Kyle. Thank you, John. Uh, as I think pretty much everybody here knows, because we've done this before and we've met most of you, my name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor-in-chief of New England Home Magazine. Uh, we have been honored to be part of the Bad Talks uh, now for five full years. You are the proud participants in our first talk of season six, so we're delighted that you have joined us on this journey so far and are here tonight. Um, we loved it when uh, John and Paul from Kotzman Wright and Hagen United Marble first came to us, um, you know, six years ago now, uh, with the idea of the Bad Talks and asked us to be part of it uh, because in addition to purveying lots of beautiful, really expensive homes to the general public, uh, we also, a big part of our mission is trying to be a very integral part of the design and construction community in a really tangible way. Um, and so for us, this is a perfect method of doing that where we can really kind of give back to and be part of the industry that we serve as a publication. Um, so, this is, as I said, the first episode, as it were, of season six, if we think of this as a reality show. Um, we'll see how wild things get tonight. Maybe we can turn it into a reality show, if we're lucky. Um, one of the comments we've been interested to get over the past few seasons when we ask people for, you know, topics for, for uh, sessions like this is that there's kind of a real appetite for um, kind of nuts and bolts sessions with real takeaways uh, because we sometimes do kind of design related or intellectual topics that are a little more kind of 
sort of pie in the sky or kind of exploring intellectual concepts that don't necessarily relate instantly to your day-to-day -day practice. Uh, but we had had some specific requests to have some sessions that are really directly relatable to everything that you guys do every day of the week. Um, and so tonight is actually uh, one of our first attempts to move in that direction. Um, and so obviously there are lots of technical disciplines that go into the kinds of big complex residential design and construction and landscape projects um, that this crew in the room here produces. And so we can't do all of those in one evening in just one sort of one hour presentation. So we decided to focus in very narrowly for this first time. But if this works out well and everybody is pleased with how this kind of thing goes, we will be doing more of these on other topics uh, and really delving into things in some depth. So for tonight, uh, by popular demand, we are talking about lighting and automation for the most part. Uh, we may verge over a little bit into audio and video if that seems like something that people are interested in, but we're mostly, to start off with, it's gonna be a, simple, a sort of a lighting and control uh, and installation uh, focus, and so we have two eminently qualified folks here to talk with us. Uh, first over here we have Dennis Jakes from Maverick Integration up in Nashua, New Hampshire. And we have Josh Feinstein from Sladen Feinstein Integrated Lighting here in the Boston area. Uh, many of you probably know these two gentlemen. Um, we will also a little bit later have Andrea Schwabel from Sladen Feinstein who will be helping us out with some actual demonstrations. <laughs> So we have kind of cool, fun things to play with down here, which is also a slightly new thing for us. Um, so just to get things started, I'm just gonna, got a couple of introductory things I wanted to go through, several of which I've already done, lest you think I'm gonna keep talking forever and ever. Um, but one thing that is especially important is because this is a new and more narrowly focused topic and we're really trying to come across with take-home information specifically for all of you. Uh, all of the bad talks have been fairly participatory because we do encourage people in the audience who have questions or kind of interesting sort of additional information or asides to add to sort of speak up. Uh, but tonight that is especially critical because what we're here to do is figure out what some of the bits and pieces that will be most useful for you to know are. And so as we start to go through the presentation, don't be shy about catching the eye of either John over here or Cindy over there. They both have wireless mics, which they will pass you so that both we and the podcast can hear what your question is. Uh, and so we will be looking for a lot of back and forth uh, because as we start in a somewhat more general fashion here, I'm sure it will bring up some more specific questions. Uh, and the idea here is that all of you uh, who are in the trenches every day, um, interior designers in their education, architects in their education, contractors in their kind of apprenticeship and practice, deal with issues of lighting design and light plans and kind of wiring and all that sort of stuff at a certain level. And so in a sense, all of you are competent up to a point to provide those services to your clients and to provide advice. Um, but as you know from your busy schedule, a generalist who's doing six gazillion things to make this house or this dwelling come together can't always keep up with the newest technology 
and the things that are just on the horizon that may be something that you can steer your clients toward, or you may not know necessarily all of the newest technical glitches that can happen with a lot of the newest technology. Um, and we have a lot of new technology in this field right now. And so the purpose of tonight is to get two experts of the field in here specifically to address some of those questions about what are the things that are happening now that you ought to know about to be able to service your clients and produce the most beautifully designed and comfortable and livable spaces. Uh, so that is enough for me. <laughs> um, so to get us started, I'd love to sort of just find out kind of who we have in our audience, which will help us know. So how many architects or architectural designers do we have here? Sort of raise your hands and wave. Interior designers. Building professionals and allied trades. So fairly good kind of mixed crowd. How about other audio, video, and lighting people? I think we have quite a few here. So you guys in particular, I will be looking for because everything that we're talking about, you may have information to add to that. And because this is a very collaborative setting, I want you to be very kind of forward about, you know, chipping in your two cents when you hear something that you have something helpful to add. Um, that being said, um, in general, as far as kind of your technical knowledge of the subject, kind of would you rate it as being extremely high and very intimate and technical? Raise your hands for that one. A few of those. Um, kind of a middle ground, very good sort of journeyman's knowledge of these things, but there are some details that it would be helpful to hear about. Wow. And then I really want to know a lot about this subject, and we kind of want to start from a fairly broad and basic level and then work up there. How about that? So that's where we want to go. That's perfect. great to know. Um, that's perfect and helpful because yeah. that tells us exactly what to do uh, to start off. Uh, so with that said, I think it might be good for Josh to give us a quick kind of intro because uh, he's brought some interesting product and he has a good little uh, illustration here of what some of the new things that are available in general lighting and kind of what they might kind of what issues they might be for you to think about as you are designing with some of this new technology. Yeah, thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Does that work? Okay. So um, this is great to be here and to actually have an audience to discuss lighting, which I'm very passionate about. And uh, to be here with Dennis, we've worked together. And I think one of the things our takeaway for you tonight is that what we do is so important that we do that as a, in conjunction, as a team. <laughs> Because yep. um, I'm going to talk about the technology of the lighting, and he's going to talk about the technology controls, and they don't work without each other. So that is a big takeaway. That um, it's okay. a lot of information. We're going to try to keep it pretty broad. Um, my question to everybody is: in the audience, how many people have designed or built a home with some LED already in it? And how many people have designed or built a home exclusively with LED lighting technology? Excellent. That's great. OK. And of those people that have, did you have any problems with the integration of the LED and controls? Or was that, did that go, yeah. 
little bit. Okay. That's not bad. Yeah. Someone's doing their job. So, you know, I used to teach and I taught fluorescent, metal halide, metal um, MR16 halogen. I don't, you know, that's gone. So everything that we can do in a residence uh, can be LED now. So for lighting designers, architects, interior designers, and builders, this is a boon for us because the beauty of the flat general light that you might have gotten in fluorescent for back of house or the beautiful sparkle and point source for art lighting that you got with MR16s or that gorgeous warmth that you got from the xenon and a cove, all of that can be recreated with LED at the tenth of the wattage consumption, 10, 20 times more lamp life. So I think everybody knows that, that's great. Um, there is a misnomer that comes up sometimes with LED that it lasts forever. That is not true. So yes, it lasts a long time. There's always a little bit of a failure rate. Um, so when we're talking details, it's important that every LED source be accessible. So no, you cannot bury it behind a wall, a glass wall, and never get to it. It will eventually fail or something's going to go wrong with it. Uh, but what we have for LED and what I want to talk about tonight is some of the newer technology that some of you may be aware of or I'd like to talk about the ways and interesting ways that we can use it. So let me start. I'm going to pop up for a sec. Thank you. Um, so there's a lot of buzz right now, which is a great buzz, about natural daylight and the experience that we all have, if it's easier, to see all the different colors of daylight. So when somebody says, well, I want my space to be lit like daylight, I'm like, well, what time of day? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. It completely changes throughout the day. And we have behavioral and physiological responses to that, which is fantastic. So we're not going to get into circadian rhythms and why that's beneficial. And there's a lot of science behind that. There's a lot of disagreements about if it's the change of color or it's a certain wavelength of blue, what time of day. That's all very important. But what we do want to acknowledge is that light changes and that people respond emotionally and physiologically to those changes, which is beautiful. I mean, that's, that's like the yumminess that we can add to your three dimensions is our lighting becomes that fourth dimension that can shift, express, pull out, recede, create shadow, all that wonderful stuff, all the techniques. So when we're looking at that kind of lighting, we're saying, how do we bring this into a residence? OK, well, we used to have to just come over here. We used to say to our clients, do you want halogen? Do you want you know, incandescent? Is that 27K? Is it 3,000? That's your choice. Or we're going to get in some fluorescent, which we all know fluorescent is a nasty light source. It has its place, but it's extremely flat and shadowless. So it has no emotional response for people. When LED first came out, I had a choice. You know, I came up to my clients and I said, I'm sorry, it's a little glary, but I'll just cover that. What color do you want, right? Do we want to go the amber in your cove? Do we want the nice balanced white light in the kitchen and maybe the playroom or something or the workshop? You want it to be a little bit whiter? You know, you have to choose, right? You don't have to choose anymore. So that is over. 
So one of the biggest things, I think, for us in lighting design that we're excited about is the fact, and what should I light up first? Um, I can have a kitchen that during the day is gonna match the color of the daylight outside. So you're cooking, you've designed beautiful glazing so that people are seeing outside and you want that feeling to be inside. And that's a design choice that you've made with your client and with your lighting designer. And then at night, hey, I want that to dim down and be warm. I want that to have that beautiful amber 25, 2700 Kelvin. I want to be able to choose. And my client may even be want to fine tune that. So that's wonderful. In a retail situation, same space, completely changed. What's the color when you say, when you're looking in your light lab, if you have one at work, and you're looking at your fabrics, your woods, your metals, all of that cloth, and you're saying, okay, what does my product look like? And you're matching it. Well, what are you matching that under? Are you matching that under 3,000, 4,000, 27? So you want to be able to look at those colors those palettes, those textures, reflectances under multiple light qualities and intensities to say, yeah, okay, these really work under many different color temperatures. Because when it used to be halogen, and we loved halogen because that's what we knew, but during the day, skylight would, you know, the light would come in the house and you're all excited and everything looked beautiful and spectrally it was great. And then at night, we think halogen light is white, it is not. It's 3,000 Kelvin, it's very warm, and it's very deficient in green and blue wavelengths. So at night, all of those saturated, vibrant blues and greens just died out. You accepted it because that's what you had available. But today, we don't have to deal with that. Today, we can have all of these colors at any time that we want. And that goes to working with Dennis because I'm gonna say I'm gonna create this tech, I'm gonna inspect this technology, and then I'm gonna look to Dennis, and I'm gonna, and you're gonna figure out how to make this easy for the client to use an app or push a button, and we're gonna have some preset scenes or some very easy, yeah, not so easy, but at the end of the day, all of the complexities that we deal with should look very easy to your client. So one of the important things with an LED fixture that's different than what we used to have that we can see here is that we have a chip on board, which is a solid state electronic component with a heat sink. LED hates heat. I think everybody knows that. Fine with cold, not good with heat. Um, you have an optical system, which is also incredibly important and something exciting and new for us that we can manipulate cove and point sources with different collimating lenses and optical lenses to a degree that we never had before. So if you're doing a museum or you're doing a museum in someone's home or you just want to go from lighting a flower pot to a, a full wall, the flexibility that we have with LED is incredibly diverse. Um, then you have your trim and you also have the power source. So this little power source, which we can call a driver, which when it was halogen, it was a transformer. When it was fluorescent, it was a ballast. But now we're using this driver to regulate the input wattage, different milliamps, 
to run that circuit board and illuminate, create that energy coming off of the diode. So this driver is critical to all the technology behind LED lighting, and it is critical to everything that Dennis and I do together because he has, I have lots of options of what driver I can choose, what protocol, and then he's got to deal with my suggestions. He's got to clean up my mess. Suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> and he may say, you know, that's not a good driver. You're causing a lot of problems, and we'll have disagreements. And I'm like, but I really need this fixture. And he's like, well, that driver's going to make the wiring cost twice as much. So there's a lot of complexity going on here. Now, this might be a little hard to see, but this is one LED fixture. This is a track head. So this is what we do all day long in our office. You say, OK, I want a track head. I want it to be LED. Um, not so easy. I have to figure out what lumen output, meaning how much energy, how much flux is coming off that fixture. So sometimes these manufacturers will have two, three, five different lumen outputs. Yes, you can go to the highest and dim down, but I'm looking at how much light do I need? What's the wattage consumption? And what's the efficacy of that wattage? Especially if I'm working in California, because Andrew and I are doing a job out there where we're limited to how many watts and what's the efficacy for Title 24. Like, you have to have so many lumens per watt to actually be able to be installed in that residence. So I can't just put in whatever I want. Then I've got to look at what is my, where am I, color rendering. What's my CRI? I'm sorry, my CRI. So is it 80% accurate? Is it 90% accurate? Is it 95% accurate? Each one comes with a cost difference. Sometimes 80% is totally fine. And sometimes 95 is absolutely critical for that walk-in closet or that piece of artwork or that you know custom kitchen that somebody is that you're designing with. So I'm looking at the fidelity, how close is that light source to perfect. Then I'm looking at the color temperature. What's the color temperature I want? Is it warm 27 or is it cool 4,000? Then what are my optics? 15 degrees, 25, 40, 60. Additionally, can I go to 80? Can I add spread lenses? Um, and then I get into my power sources. Is it reverse phase, forward phase, dolly, 0 to 10? There's a lot of technology going in here. And then some good stuff. I mean, for you guys, you just want to make sure that that functions, it's aesthetically appropriate, and that it dims properly, and the client knows how to use it. Um, let me, before I go into that, oh, sorry. Yeah. So let me come over here and just show you this one. Yeah, thanks. Oops, wrong one. Where's this one? That's on. <laughs> okay. So the first thing I want to show you is a 3,000 Kelvin MR16. Yep. And then we can dim it, and it's going to shift color down to about 1,700 Kelvin. And then if you go back up, Andrea, back up to 3,000 Kelvin. 
So this is the original color that you would have had with an MR16 that everybody sort of in America branded to. That's what we love. And then when we dim it down, we can get down to that 1700 candlelight glow. So this dimming protocol is replicating what people expect to see with MR16s and incandescent. So that most homeowners won't even know that they're not under the old, like if they haven't renovated for 10 or 15 years, this is gonna be the same experience. But now the HVAC is gonna be reduced because we're not adding so much heat into that space. The lamp life is 10 times longer and the color fidelity is actually better than an MR16 because this fixture actually can pull out all the blues, greens, yellows, oranges. It's going to be a much better fidelity as far as vibrancy and color than MR16 ever could do. So we have to just forget the MR16 and go, okay, this is the new normal that we're getting that level of lighting. This is why, um, let me just turn that one off, thanks. This is why museums are using LED exclusively now. They're very excited. I mean, it's pulling out textures, colors um, that they have never seen before under other types of light. Um, what else do I want to talk about before we? And any questions while I'm talking, just let me know, because I'm just going to keep talking. Um, <laughs> So the question is, is it less damage? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so it's less. So with your traditional light sources, the inf you had, let's say, uh, your incandescent had a lot of infrared, which would, if you used picture lights, which I use, always had a problem with picture lights in residences, because I would ask, is this a, his is this a preservation piece of artwork? Because the, the light source ends up right next to the canvas. And what happens is thermal heating, the canvas expands, contracts, expands, contracts, and eventually it crazes and cracks, and you do thermal damage. And then the lights also had a lot of UV in them, and then you got photochemical damage because the pigments were actually being destroyed by the light waves. LED has a tenth of the heat, and it is, uh, there's no UV in the LED source. In addition, though, any visible light spectrum is still damaging to artwork, so you still have to limit the amount, but you're removing the most damaging, which is the ultraviolet radiation, and you take that out because it doesn't ruin the fidelity of looking at the artwork. So you can take that out, but it's not a problem anymore with LED. So that's a really great piece. They don't have to do UV filters, and they don't have to pull the fixture far away. They don't have to worry about all that stuff. So it's very good, it's very good. Um, the other thing that we can do with light is, and I'm gonna get into a couple other products that I wanna talk about, is, here we go. So, we always had your typical cove, right? It's a big pitch, different colors I'm showing you here. Um, and these lights do one thing. It's 110 degrees and it's just a blob of light. Totally fine, nothing wrong with that. Wonderful, we can put that in. 
This does require this does require a remote driver because it's low voltage. It's 10, 12 or 24 volts. Some of the newer product online or that we have available, which makes our life easier, is 120 volt. The driver is built in. So from a construction point of view, I can click and play and put these into a cove, get the same 110 degree different color temperatures, it's flexible, but I don't, I'm not running every 16 feet low voltage wire back to a driver in some closet that somebody has to get access to. So there is more product on the market coming up that's 120 or 277 volts that's pretty small in profile and that's gonna give you a lot of bang for your buck and you're not gonna have to worry about a lot of that extra wiring or controls. Um, also, um, this is really newer because uh, Juno just came out with this product. It was on the, they were marketing it and they just came out with this, which is exciting. Okay, where am I? All right. This is Cove. Does not look like your typical Cove, right? So this is silicon, it's actually, in case in silicon, every single LED diode has its own little baby reflector worked right into it. So now we're getting into some engineering, some optical engineering. And what's beautiful about this is that this is actually a grazer. Because this is a 10 degree, you can actually see when I get really close. If you look, you can actually see, oops, sorry. Let's make it better to do it that way. You can see the center beam. There's a secondary field, but you can see the center beam right there. Does everybody see that? That is optics, so that I can put this, you might put this above a drapery around a room, or you might be grazing behind a banquette, but you actually want to graze stone or graze wood or some texture. Um, not particularly expensive. But they said, hey, is a strip of LED a strip of LED? No, it can actually have built-in optics. Juno. Yeah. And then they came out with this. I was very impressed with this line. Um, and it's pretty well-priced, I have to say. Um, whoops. This is a wall washer. So it's got built-in little optics for wall washing in a cove. So the light's actually going in a particular direction, but it's actually used to illuminate a wall. So if you were putting this, this one right here is 35K, and I think that one was 3,000. It was a little bit warmer. But you can get them, yeah, what, this one was warmer. But you can get them in 27, 3, 35. They're offering that. Um, you can also. Obviously, you can get this type of cove tunable, meaning it, you can change any color you want. Not this particular brand, but you can get cove totally tunable. Um, let me do. Another nice newer product is your LED pitch on a flexible sheet. Has everybody seen this already? So this is great for backlighting. Uh, if you wanted to backlight an onyx wall, uh, in your residence, or you had a countertop that you wanted to highlight and you wanted to glow, 
Yes, so we've got a kit here. Um, it is very thin. I call this decal lighting. But we always had that problem where you want to backlight something. And there was this issue, especially when we used to do fluorescent halogen, you needed a lot of depth. We don't need that depth anymore. Thanks. So that one. Oh, actually, this has got a cord. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> Just needed a ketchup. We're good. We're good. We're good. <laughs> We don't want to lose any fingers tonight. No, it's just plugs right here. We're all professionals. All <laughs> professionals here. All right. And I got to put this one in here. And actually, while they're doing that, I'll just make a quick uh, note. If you have a question or want to interject a comment, please get the attention of one of the two people with the microphones. Otherwise, nobody who hears this recording later will have any idea what you're asking. Just a I know it slows things down a little bit, but. Yep. So that tape is in this little kit. We've got different color temperatures. And I apologize for the faux marble, but it's going to work. Um, but this is a two inch depth. So when you're looking at your product and you want to backlight, you can get as, yeah, you know, alabaster. I can get really close, but you can see the different shifts because I've got four different color temperatures and they all look vastly different. So it's incredibly important that you test your material because that's the same material in four different ways. But it illuminates beautifully. So that's another product that, um, oops, and it's dimmable. That makes it a little bit better. Okay, let me turn that down. And I'm gonna get into the last one. I'll do a really cute. Okay. Josh. Yeah. Whose product was that? WAC. WAC. I'm not supposed to say WAC. Got it. WAC lighting. <laughs> um, yeah, let's do the um, luminetics because I, I want to get back to questions. All right, so we're going to plug in something that's very, very exciting. And something that we're using, we're doing in a residence right now where all the product is going to be using uh, this company, Luminetics. What they do is they have five different LED chips. So they've got an RGB, W, Lime, Amber. They have different metrics. But a lot of manufacturers are buying both linear and um, modules with this. And this allows us to do color tuning and uh, saturation hue manipulation. Let me plug something in. Where did I go? Oh, there we go. Uh, that's our power cord. Oh, no, that's good. No, that was our power. Put that back. Oh, no, we're fine. Sorry. I'm screwing you up. Okay. All right. Okay, so this one, sorry. I have an app on my phone because everything's an app now. Okay, so I'm going to be able to change the color temperature of that. And I can also get into colors, all from the same fixture. 
if we hold this close, uh, let me go back to, whoops, sorry. You can see all the pretty colors, right? This is never going to be raw. It's always going to be behind some diffusing lens to smooth that out. Um, but I am going to demonstrate. What's the difference in price range between that system and the earlier systems that you showed, having that kind of control? So the control, the DMX control on this is very inexpensive. Uh, the product is a premium product, so it's probably 30% more. Um, but it's coming down in price because so many manufacturers are adopting this. So this whole idea of creating a suite of fixtures, your cove, your downlight, your wall washer, your adjustable, that you can tune the color, tune the fidelity to the hue, the saturation, and the intensity, um, go to pastels, white, it's, it's phenomenal. So when you're, you know, I used to have to sit there and in the residential client or my commercial clients and say, okay, what color, we gotta pick a color. Is it 3,000, is it 27, is it 35? And everyone's like, I don't know. Do I? We don't have to do that anymore. We can say, you know what, don't worry about it. We're gonna decide once the house is built and lights are in, we're gonna walk through and we're gonna set it and forget it. That's my biggest phrase, let's just set it and forget it, commission it to a point that you're comfortable. And then you so, can probably set it for different times of day because color temperature varies throughout the day. Yes. Oh, there you go. Sorry, I just this voice. That is absolutely, yeah, like, who is that? You're absolutely right, that's the beauty. It doesn't, it, it, can, it can be randomized or it can be for different times of day. And it can, you can have the lighting, so this resident I'm doing, residence, the general lighting throughout the day will actually replicate what's outside. But then at night, they don't need, you know, they might want to be 27K or 3,000 for a party, it's whatever they want. But in general, the default will be that, because she's an artist and she's in her studio and she's 70, you know, 57 stories up, looking out over Boston, and during the day, she's gonna be flooded with 5,000 Kelvin coming in, she can have 5,000 Kelvin all around her. If she doesn't like that, we can change it to 4,000. But it's going to feel like the outside is inside. That's, we never could do that before. So it's extremely exciting for us. So I'm gonna show Andrea here. I just want you to, and then we're gonna talk about why this is good. Yep. So you're gonna notice, that's a, this is a seven, 1650 Kelvin, so that's candlelight. Now we're at 27K, which is our traditional incandescent. Now we are at 3,000 Kelvin. And now we are at 4,000 Kelvin. So you can see that there's different changes in the way she looks, right? <laughs> and then I think number five. Number five is 5,000 Kelvin. All right, why would this be good? Like, how would you use this in a residence? Besides general, I mean, what would like be a really good application for this? Yes, definitely. Okay, what about your high-end client that is in their dressing room getting ready for a very important event? And they are, they've done their hair, they're doing their makeup, and they're putting on their clothes. And you can say to your client, hey, I can give you lighting system in your closet and your mirror and your vanity so that you can make sure that everything you have on looks good under 
daylight because it's outdoors, but then you're going to be going into an, you know, an indoor club and it's going to be under incandescent, and then at night it's candle, you know, candlelight. Does this look good? Do I look good in all those conditions? Um, you know, some high-end retailers like Macy's, some of their exclusive changing rooms are using this technology so that people are looking at that emerald green dress and they're saying, okay, day, evening, relaxing, yep, that works or it doesn't work, less returns. So that idea is excellent. The other thing that we can do is we can play with vibrancy. So I'm going to try this. It's going to be a little bit more. This is where it, So I have a complete Munsell scale here, and I can dial in any color I want. If I want it to be a little bit more in the fuchsia color or more in the green color, I can change all of that. But so I can go to a mixed white, and let me see. I can start to change the color temperature to cooler, but then I can also change the saturation so that certain colors are starting to become more intense, and I can start to shift that color. So it's really dimensional lighting. I mean, that's the level that we're looking at and then I'm going to actually stop because this is a good segue into Dennis. Absolutely. <laughs> um, that the control of this is as important as everything I just showed you. Everything here has a very specific dimming protocol, driver, electrical Yeah, um, and that actually, I mean, that is a perfect segue because, Dennis, um, one of the things that you said during our preparation call yesterday that really struck me uh, was you said controls for lighting systems have gotten dramatically better and easier to work with, but you have to wire them differently from conventional lighting. And so the person picking the fixtures, the person designing the controls, and the person doing the wiring all have to coordinate because what each one of those people does affects what the other two people have to do. The page with so, all the drivers on it. I heard you. I was just, okay. where did that page go with all the drivers on it? Oh, I think he's got to go to the I next I think we need to go to the other oh, presentation. Yeah, you can go back to um, Oh, it was in Josh's, Josh's presentation? Josh's presentation. Oh, you can just go backwards. I, I tried, and I was, yeah. oh, there it was. Now, I think he switched it over there. And so I think now we'll be addressing some of the kind of nitty-gritty details for those people who have to execute and build and design these kinds of things with some of the interesting new technologies that Josh has just talked about. What are the implications for how you need to work together to implement these things in the most efficient way? Um, hi, my name is Dennis. I have been in the integration world since 1998, um, doing this for quite a few of your homes and projects, and um, I wanted to say thank you for inviting us here. But um, one of the things I want to start about today and share today is um, often I am not in those initial meetings with the lighting designer. Often I am not the one around Often I'm given a piece of paper with all the suggestions that Josh puts on them. And <laughs> what I'm trying to encourage is that there is a yin and a yang to this, right? What you do in the lighting fixtures and how you, that, that, that um, presentation you're wanting, you have this um, idea to present into these homes. I'm not always able to listen to that conversation. I'm giving it to on a piece of paper. And I imagine that plenty of you have been given a set of documents to price that has one of these spec sheets, and if you're lucky, you get a submittal with the document, 
but it just says R3 on it or R2 on it, and then it doesn't have any of the little boxes there colored in, right? But you're supposed to figure out what it was supposed to price. And, and more importantly to me, how is it going to perform at the end? Part of this performance has always been a struggle trying to find a way to marry what the person wants to see on the wall or wants to interface with the system, and then what Josh has brought up is this, hey, this is this vision that I've got for your home. I want it to work like this. So usually I get involved because I'm the one that has to kind of pick out this thing called a driver. And as you look at these lists, I'm sure you've seen them all. If you look at companies like USAI, I think they have like nine different DIML4, DIML6, DIML7, and I have to supposedly kind of come up with what that's going to be and how it's going to perform. When you have a good lighting designer like Josh's office, they will do that all for us because that is part of the vision. That is part of how he's going to do it. Not all the drivers will actually do warm dimming. The project that Josh and I worked on together, he had picked all the drivers. He had known the control. He wanted to have uh, warm dimming. And it was one of the earlier times when you had to do this. You had to do it only a certain way. I was not just picking out the drivers because of the compatibility, but I was picking out the drivers on how well it performed. Now, because of LED, has now, now emerged in LED, LED has brought in a ton of different options. All right? Not only do you have the driver, but now you have different colors, different color temperatures, vibrancy, and everything else that he's been talking about. And it brings in new complexities that what I would encourage is that when you work with your lighting designer, that you also take in consideration how they're going to control it. We can all envision that you don't want a keypad or a touch panel on the wall where they're picking a color. They're not going to come into a room and hit blue or whatever. We're supposed to curate that, I think, for them in these projects. And there's a lot of emerging communication and technologies like Dolly, like Ketra has done, um, that have been around and they're solidified, but allows me to do, like DMX, that allows me to actually interface and give the vision that Josh has been doing. We just have, I just can't do that with a regular dimmer anymore. I can't do that with a switch on the wall. That has to be done with some type of interface that has that logic behind. And it could be something simple. It could be static temperatures where in that closet, Josh says, you know what? In that closet, there's no natural daylight. I want it set at 3,300, 3,500, something like that. He picked the right fixture to illuminate so you know it's between that navy and that black. My job, and then where I end up getting brought into this, is that the client's expecting that when they hit that button, all of a sudden, that vision that I was not there for, that vision that was suggested, that vision that I never got a chance to see, and I got a piece of paper, I got to make that come true, right? Good arc, good lighting designers have set me up to succeed versus just a blank sheet. I want to really encourage that there's a lot of compatibility between devices. And there are a lot of new emergent technologies where you can actually do things like actually put in a project and have no dimmers in them at all. Many of the times the problems that we've had were interaction between the flickering or how well the light dims or how well it performs is based on its ability, its compatibility between the dimmer, the dimmer and its driver. I've always, and you've integrated with, you guys have all probably worked with integrators or such that they all need, hey, I need to know that driver, right? Not only how to wire it, but how well it's going to perform. And if I could actually get rid of the dimmer, I mean the, uh, the dimmer, then I get rid of the dimming and driving compatibility. So there are companies that are emerging out there that I've been successful with some projects where I've been able to wire all the lights on one circuit and then communicate them all through one wired technology or wireless. 
the name brands that he's been bringing up, USAI, WAC, all these companies, especially companies like Luminetics, are making these light engines that allow you to put in these different fixtures and then have this the driver you pick with it. And then if the control system is talking to any of these popular controls, you can actually do quite a bit of communication, quite a bit of functionality that Josh is picking out mm -hmm. just by dialing in in the control system. But I just wanted to kind of bring up that there is a marriage between the two of them. Right? The fixture is only part of it. I'm not trying to diminish what Josh is saying, but I do need a little bit of a, a chance to succeed by having some of these control systems actually marry that vision that you want to do. And I think that happens when you get a good lighting designer in the project. Um, and it's not always seen in the residential space. I have more lighting designers on landscape than I do inside of homes. Right? I'm the control guy and I'm out there and I have just somebody put it together. And so what I'm encouraging is that there is a wealth of knowledge, wealth of experience that every lighting designer in this industry can bring into the residential space and I'd love to see you do it. Um, that's kind of my rant on, on uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to get it out. I don't well, do public speaking. If anybody noticed, I'm shaking like a leaf. Well, and I want to, I want to just say to that, um, I've been in a number of initial meetings and typically I'm like, who's the electrical engineer? Who's the electrician? Because I'm interested and I'm like, who's the AV consultant? And when they say there isn't one, oh God. Or I was at a very high-end residential meeting and the client said, oh yeah, I got a guy. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, you got a guy. Seinfeld episode. Um, right? That was not, it wasn't. So, you know, I'm always saying you need an AV consultant. I, if for me to do my job, I need to work with somebody like Dennis. Yes. Um, could you comment a bit on uh, the, some of the new trends regarding like Amazon Alexa and Google Home and how those might integrate and where are we in that kind of, uh, you know, I can see coming into my house and saying afternoon or something or saying we're going to have a party or something and, yeah. and I know those are just out but to what extent are manufacturers and, and you know, designers and controllers such as yourselves um, starting to, to look at that new kind of mode of controlling these things? It's a very, very good question. Um, so part of the anatomy um, that Josh brought up of a luminaire, right, yeah. is the driver, the reflector, the light engine. But there isn't anything that really, there's no open protocol for communication device. Philips Hue, for example, is an example where they have a chip in there that they've made and they've opened the API for things like Amazon. Unfortunately, Luminetics, the Citizen, Ashram, these kind of companies, I think those are the major three, yeah. right? Cree. Cree. Oh, sorry, Cree, Sora. Yep. They don't have on their chipset an open API to communicate to other devices. However, there is a company called Josh AI. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, um, but it's a, it's a product like you think of it, Alexa. And it can actually download the XML file from a control system, whether it's Legrand or Homeworks, Lutron Homeworks, or something of that, where we actually take the database and actually can walk into a home and say, OK, Josh, I'm home. And that can execute a lighting command. And it's very simple, and it works even with a control system. Where with Alexa, it's, and most of the, Google Home, for example. So I have all three of them at home. And, the, the best way for me to describe Google Home and uh, Alexa is that it's a very vertical system, unless you're doing something crazy on the back end. But for the normal consumer, it's really whatever the feature set that that manufacturer allows you to expose. 
All right, so remember about eight or nine years ago, there really weren't many apps for products. Really, but today, there isn't a scenario where you can't buy, you know, your coffee machine now has apps for it. Right? Think of anything you can buy today that doesn't have an app. So our hope is that with Internet of Things, all right, IoT, all of these devices will have an open protocol where they're actually communicating back and forth to each other and there's not a central processor. But currently the way we're doing it is relatively archaic where there is one umbrella. So we have to use things like Josh AI. If you look at history on a lot of the electronics, it varies, right? Television technology versus other things that we have out there. But it's usually on a seven-year cycle. It depends yeah. a little bit. Internet speed has certainly gotten a lot better over the last seven years. Dan, I just wanted also to that. I think with the Alexa and the Google Home, a lot of that, Dennis isn't correct, is retrofit. Correct. Like you're screwing in your retrofit lamps with an embedded chip. You've got your MR16s, you know, that is LED. They're not dedicated. So I think what you're talking about is where you're retrofitting, taking out existing lamps and you're decorative, you're recessed, you're under cabinet, you're, but you're putting in um, retrofit lamps. And I think where, like a lot of product I was showing here is all dedicated, so that dedicated LED on board, that all needs to be an actual system. However, the, what he's saying, the internet of things, that is the future. Every single fixture is gonna be embedded with a smart chip. Correct. And you will be able to change the zoning and the, the groupings of lighting and the intensities anytime you want. Um, and uh, yeah, seven years, I think 10 years for residences, but it's absolutely happening. We just figured out LED. That was a lot of work, right, Lana? <laughs> like, oh my God, we just got LED. Now we got to do Internet of Things, meaning every, it's not enough to know about all this. Now I have to have it all embedded with intelligence, and that is going to help greatly. Yeah. So someone asked earlier about the 30, uh, like how much more expensive these luminetics drivers. Remember that? That fixture is currently found, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is found in some of the nicer fixtures, yes. yeah. right? Yep. And, and I want to define that, um, remember, a luminaire, right, is everything there, right? A lamp like the Philips Hue is not a luminaire, right? It doesn't have the reflector. It doesn't have, it's not a luminaire dedicated to do some of the things that Josh needs to do. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, right? it's basic. I mean, <clears throat> you get what you get. Right. So right now, yes, correct. So with Josh AI, I've been able to use products with a control system and that Luminetics products. I've actually done it right with that Luminetics stuff um, in dedicated fixtures um, and be able to give you control of the whole house. In, with a candelabra bulb in the decorative, when you walk in the dining room, it's turning on the recess, it's turning on the chandelier and the sconces. You, you can, yes, that's another way of doing it. But remember, Alexa is really towards Lutron, certain, not all brands of Lutron, right? Meaning Caseda is, if, you're, if anybody's Lutron friendly or smart here, that Caseda is one entry level versus QS. And so Alexa really will not work with QS, but um, Caseda it will. So depending on what you're trying to do. If I'm trying to do DMX in a house off, I really can't do that with Caseda. Hello? Sorry. Uh 
So I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. For Josh or for me? Um, so I'm just trying to figure out, like, physically how this happens. Mm -hmm. So you have the same wiring, but you want it to be smart technology. So the point at which the fixture is attached to the wiring has to be taken out and completely uh, a, a new a new fixture has to be put in, as opposed to a different bulb. Right, Just right. It's not the, the, the guts of the. Um, if it's if it's fixture. dedicated, if it's architecturally yeah. integrated fixtures, not screw in, yeah. then the fixture itself has to have certain wiring protocol, and it can also be embedded with smart chips. Correct. So you just pull it out, put a new one in. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. I know of, it's expensive. Right? Well, it's a it's lot expensive. of because the wiring is different too. Oh, that's what I'm asking. So the actual wiring. Yes. Okay, that's my question. Yeah. yeah, that's actually kind of a topic we're working in toward. Oh, oh, yeah. sort of so What are the wiring implications for a lot okay. of these things? Uh, yeah. If you want the Kremlin so, to also be able to control your lighting, it's also helpful. <laughs> 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 Great. So, before getting into wiring, starting at the front end, you were talking about right before we've just heard so much about the versatility of LEDs, and you know they can do anything. You might have the impression, um, but could you comment on how? one fixture and if there's anything in particular to look out for to know when one fixture will not match with a particular driver or mm -hmm. wiring interface um, to do what you want it to do. You might see this fixture and say, that's the one, but it's not going to, but when we come to you, you might say, oh, that's not going to do what you want it to do. Um, is there any way to identify, is there anything in particular uh, that's common? Well, technically you can work, look at the sheets. And, course, and see course. compatibility. That's you can look here, and, but you're going to look at. Is it the diode at, itself that has the problem, or is it something else in the fixture? No, the driver will tell you how you can. Um, will define the feature set of that fixture, and then the sure. luminaire will define how well it lights. The control is needs to match that. So, for example, if you wanted to do a DMX interface and do all these fancy colors. I can't do it with a regular rocker switch, no matter how smart anybody is with a laptop. Right. Right? Of course, of course. There are certain lighting control systems out there. Um, you may have even heard of Lutron Caseta. It's available in Home Depot and stuff like that. You can actually, that is a control system that is smart. It does work with Alexa. However, it doesn't have the way to communicate via DMX. So absent on that document would be anything that says DMX on it. Just doesn't have that compatibility, where other systems do. Right. So if you have, if he specifies a, DMX, a device with a DMX driver because he wants these colors, he wants this nice blue glow around the pool, inside this indoor pool, you would need to make sure that the control system has to have DMX to match that, or at yeah. least the capability of communicating sure. with that. So the compatibility is not so much between the fixture and the driver as much as it is between the driver and the controls behind right. it. Correct. And yeah. that's kind of been, for the last 10 years, is yes. kind of me examining the two documents and figuring out if it even exists. And many fixture spec sheets don't often brag about how good they dim. Yeah. They say dim a bowl, right? Sure. Yeah, well, it's dim a bowl, all right? How well is the other so, thing? I mean, we have, I mean, this Thanks is a commercial that. example, but we're working on a lobby that we have general set 3,000 Kelvin LED, and that's mm -hmm. on a Leviton Sapphire, like it's a back of house system that creates morning, noon, evening scenes. But we also have tunable white fixtures that are actually changing throughout the day because they're skylights. Those two systems don't speak to each other. 
we've asked multiple times to the manufacturer, there's no interface so that the client can have one keypad with four buttons. We actually have to have two separate keypads at this point because the protocols, they don't match. Because the manufacturer that I selected for that from cool to warm light, because that was the form factor, that was the lumen output, that, that fit for many, like 10 different metrics that I looked at, that was the right fixture, but it doesn't work with the general that happens in residences too. Sometimes you, he can interface them and sometimes they need to be alone. I just want to make one other point. One thing I did show up here, the dim to warm, that can just be on a regular reverse phase or um, dimmer. Like you don't have to get a system. So if you just install those in a family room and your electrician just put in a regular wall box dimmer, you dim it, it dims to warm. So that logic's built into the light fixture itself. If I spoke wrong, I'm sorry about that one. Yeah, what? Yeah. If I spoke wrong on that one, I'm sorry. No, no, but that was the only yeah. one. Yeah. Everything else needs a protocol, but that one right now for dedicated LED is like simple. You can say to your client, just dim it. You don't, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. It's white, it's amber. It's white, it's amber. You're done. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, That's Josh, what one. you just said about the, uh, the two keypads that don't actually communicate right now, uh, I think brings us to another quick, important subject that we want to get to before the end of the night uh, as we sort of get on in time, uh, which is all of these systems, the wiring and the control things, have implications for how the space itself needs to be designed. Yes. Right. Uh, because there need to be, in many cases, control boxes and spaces where all of these things need to be accessible and come yeah. together. Uh, and so particularly for architects and designers who are working in sort of small downtown apartments and other tight spaces, kind of do you have thoughts about how to deal with where the control boxes need to go and where they need to be designed into the space so that you actually have a place to put all of this technology? Um, so one of the other, not only is the LED fixture getting smaller, but some of the communication um, I hinted at earlier what happens if you can do this without the dimmer, right? Many of these systems you can actually communicate directly to the fixture and it actually has a, um, a, an electronic serial number. So think of wiring all the lights in the house on one circuit. Every single one of them. One piece of wire connects all of them. And then another piece of wire will actually communicate with them or I can even do that wirelessly. What I've done is I've gotten rid of that black panel that you guys all remember downstairs in the basement that the AV guy made you do. LED technology allows us to do that with protocols like DMX, Dolly, um, Ketra, whatever, whatever ones that they're picking. Mm -hmm. But that allows us to get rid of some of those panels, especially with all the boom here in the city. Yeah. Right? When you look at some of these architectural plans, how many times is there in the drawing, is there a thing that says put electrical panels here? Never mind lighting, right? It just doesn't exist, especially if you go into any of these towers like the Millennium I'm working in now. There is no space for it. No. The low voltage communication panel is in the hallway in a finished part of the house, right? And then I have to go in there and the clients have spent all that money and they want to have some nice lighting design and I'm going, oh, I got this nice pretty black panel that I'm going to, all right, where's the laundry room, right? So there are new technologies emerging, and I have been successful the last couple of years using this technology by literally putting all the circuits and getting rid of the dimmers. I did it because I was trying to get rid of the incompatibility between dimmers and drivers. And it's opened up a whole new can of worms with this whole lighting 
coloring temperature. And it, this is not new. If you take any of your old projects and open up like a USAI specification, you'll see these drivers. They've existed for many, many years. It's just now becoming aware, and I think LED is driving this awareness to us that we can do all this color shifting. And DMX obviously has been here for a while. If you don't know, it's a theatrical uh, tool, but it now lends perfectly well into the residential space and doing some of this color tuning that's available. Yeah. Right? That's kind of on the wiring. But um, yeah, I think, well, there was one other thing that uh, actually came up during our pre-discussion yesterday that, that it might also thing. be helpful to talk about. You talked a little bit about apertures and um, LEDs and kind of what some of the flexibility is and yeah. some of the pros and cons of what people may or may not want to do yeah. with Very some good. of these new things. Um, yeah. And I think we have a number of architects and designers who would love to know why they don't necessarily want all of their lights to be you know, a quarter of an inch in each direction, even though that would make them virtually invisible. I call it race to zero, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a point of diminishing return. Um, so everybody wants to have the smallest aperture on the ceiling. Um, I think this is a two inch or 1.75 inch trim, but then you've got a flange. And we can obviously do it flangeless so that that's just mudded in. Um, there is a race to zero to get smaller and smaller. Um, as a designer, it's my responsibility to make sure that I'm giving the adjustability so that I can, this is locked in place, but that I can actually adjust this fixture um, to light a piece of artwork. But when I'm talking about what's in the ceiling, smaller is not always better because we need a certain amount of light output to light a space. In order to do that, I need a certain aperture. And the manufacturer might do a great job of doing a very small, like, one-inch downlight. You're like, oh, that's great, one inch, that's perfect, no trim, wonderful. You have to see these fixtures in person. I, it, more than ever with LED, you should ask to see almost all the fixtures because you want to look at glare, how regress the light source is. But what's happened, especially in commercial, is these manufacturers, you know, slots are really popular right now, LED slots. They're everywhere. And they're getting narrower and narrower, but the lumen output is getting higher and higher. And what's happening is you're getting these razor-burning bright lines of light that are causing retinal damage. People are complaining at work, and it's in their field of vision, and it's burning, and they can't look at it, and they're getting headaches. You do that in a residence and you go to these tiny little fixtures, you think it's great, and now you've got like little bombs of light. So we have to balance aesthetics and aperture size um, and dimming and all that, but I, small fixtures work in certain places. The, best, the, fi the best fixtures are the ones that you can't tell they're on, and I've installed those. And people go, the light's not on. I'm like, yeah, it's on. And they go and they look up and like, oh yeah, the light's on. That's a good fixture. You can't tell until you're looking up at it. How does the shape affect the aperture? I've noticed a lot shape? more square openings, which are beautifully plastered right up to yeah. the edge. Yeah. And they're gorgeous aesthetically. But what is the quality uh, difference between a round opening and a square opening? So great question. Squares are great. It depends on the manufacturer. Some do a very good job with the optics, so when the light comes out, it is still sort of a round, diffuse, soft bit of light. And some, let's, let's say the less, with lighting, you get what you pay for. 
you end up with a square pattern of light on the floor. Not desirable. I think that's really so it's distracting. It's a harder. It's a harder yeah. light. But you can get square apertures that look just like a round aperture as far as performance. You do need to be a little more cognizant when you're lighting artwork with a square because if it scallops, you're getting a trapezoidal scallop, which is very bizarre. You know, obviously the more curved and soft scallop is going to be more acceptable, or you can get into a framing projector, whether it's recess or track, and just literally frame that art out. But no, squares are, are huge, and there's ovals now, and I mean, it, the, the shapes keep changing, but I, I, we work with, I'd say 50-50, square and round. And so I think, unfortunately, because of time heading toward a conclusion here, uh, I will say that um, Obviously, we have another 20 minutes or so for a little more eating and drinking and talking, and our two panelists will be here if you have individual questions for them. Um, one of the subtexts of this talk that I think I won't ask our panelists to actually say, but I think it's pretty clear, which is this is one of those subjects where having the relevant experts on board in your project team really makes sense. Uh, especially for very high-end things where a lot of money is being spent and the results need to be really optimal. Um, and so kind of knowing who the good people are and making sure that they are looped in at a very early stage um, so that they aren't just getting a sheet of, here's what we want you to execute at the end regardless of how hard it might be or how much it might cost, uh, is always a good idea. Forgive me for putting words in both of your mouths, but I don't think you'll disagree too much. Um, Obviously, there are other people even here in the room who do both of these things, mm -hmm. and so there are a lot of choices out there. Um, with that said, I would just like to give a couple of parting um, advisories for all of you. Um, first of all, as John mentioned, our next bad talk is on January 22nd, 2019, and that is going to be on the subject of who is in the driver's seat. Uh, which is a matter of working out responsibility and accountability in project teams, which can come together in a lot of very different ways. Um, there was, a, as mentioned on the sign over here, we're always looking for new topics. So as you come to these things or in your everyday life, if you think of a topic that might be good for a, uh, an evening like this one, uh, please go to badtalks.com and make that suggestion, or email John, or email Paul Wright over there, who are also some of the keepers of our uh, curatorial uh, future, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so I'm sorry to kind of cut things off a little bit. I think this could have gone on for much longer, but unfortunately we don't have that much longer. <laughs> yeah. So if you do have additional questions, by all means come up and chat with um, our panelists individually. Um, I would like to thank the BDC for hosting us in this lovely space. Uh, some of you may want to ask about Edison bulbs now that I see them here, which is something we didn't touch on uh, this evening. Um, thank you all on behalf of New England Home and the Bad Talks. Um, come back in January. We love having you. We love getting everybody together for this kind of community information and community building exercise. And special thanks both to Dennis, Dennis and to Josh uh, for really illuminating uh, conversations tonight. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. It took a while.